I encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the book of 2 Samuel in your in the Old Testament. If you're not quite sure where to find that, just look it up in the front of your Bible and get a page number and navigate towards 2 Samuel. We'll be looking at chapter 3 in its entirety this morning. And it's important for us, if we take nothing else away, it's important for us to read the Word together. So I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 3, and you can follow along in your copy of the Scripture. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Hinoam, the Jezreelitess. The second, Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, son of Maka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David a Hebron. It came about that while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. May God also do to Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word, because he was afraid of him. And Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. He said, Good, I'll make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, whom you come to see when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. In addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. 
Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? And he's already gone. You know, Abner the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out all that you're doing. When Joab came from David, he sent messengers from Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who is a leper, who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the bier. Thus they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. The king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me and more if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner the son of Ner to death. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. We've noted in this book of Second Samuel that God is demonstrating his right to rule. God and God alone is Israel's king. Now God has chosen to appoint representatives of his rule. The first King Saul, then King David here in the books of Samuel. Saul, we see in 1 Samuel 15, disobeyed God. So God sent his prophet Samuel and communicated to Saul that the kingdom would be wrenched away from him and given to a better man. In 1 Samuel 16, we see that man as 
David. So as we come to 2 Samuel, roughly 15 years have passed since that promise that God made to David that he would be Israel's next king. 15 years. And as we come to 2 Samuel, we see God's promises coming to fruition. Maybe not in David's timing, And over that 15 years, as he had to flee away from pursuing Saul, who wanted to kill him, probably many times he wondered, is God's promises to me, are they true? And yet we find that God is always true to his promises. Remember, David is king over the south right now, over Judah. One of Saul's sons, a guy named Ishbosheth, was put into power by Saul's general, Abner. So Ishbosheth is king over the north. David is king over the south. And as we come to chapter 3, we're going to see that God is at work, that David and his line, his kingdom is growing stronger, while Saul's dynasty continues to grow weak. And one of the interesting things that we're going to see in this chapter is that people continue to act out of disregard to God. People in the life of David and in the life of those who are seeking David as king, people will continue to just do what they want to do, regardless of the circumstances. Now, whatever happens, they do what's best for them. Often, as we're going to see this week and next week, in just complete defiance against what God says is right. And yet, God somehow takes those acts, willful acts against him, and weaves those, orchestrates those in such a way that God actually uses those to carry out His promises. Now here's a question for you and for me. How should I respond, how should you respond when you have people in your sphere of life, in your network, who are willfully acting in disregard to the things of God. How should we respond to that? I mean, is is life just totally out of control? And what we're going to see this morning is that God is able to orchestrate even those direct acts out of disregard to the things of God. He's able to orchestrate all of those things into a fabric, a tapestry, by which His promises, His will, comes to fruition, is carried out. When I was a kid, probably my favorite thing to do was to spend time with my grandpa and my uncle who farmed together on the farm that where my father was born and grew up. And when I was a young boy, my uncle rented an 80 just north of my grandpa's farmstead. And on that 80 was a pretty nice fishing pond. 
So my brother and I would sometimes just try to weave into the schedule of the day by means of my grandmother, who kind of had a tendency to tell my grandpa what to do. Doesn't that look like a good morning to fish? And so my grandma would get this huge straw hat get into this old Plymouth that she used to drive around that had the push buttons to, to for a transmission. Do you remember those? And she would take the rods and put them between the seats, this big hat. I would go get the night crawlers out of the freezer down in the cellar, and we'd go to the pond. Oh, it's going to be a good day. Now, this pond is known for having some really nice largemouth bass, and my grandmother is very competitive. There's a problem. While there's some really nice bass in there, it is just teeming with these little tiny rock bass. I mean, they are just a nuisance. You cannot cast into that pond without coming back with a little rock bass. And my grandmother would get so mad at those because it's keeping her from catching the big fish. And she says, just don't throw them back in the pond. Just chuck them out in the field. And my brother and I had more fun chucking rock bass than we did fishing. Literally, hundreds of rock bass. You ever have anybody chuck fish into your field? Throw some rotten fish your way? Kind of wondering, why is God allowing these fish to come my way? These rotten, stinking fish? And right we're in the, when we're in the middle of these fish coming our way, it's hard to understand. And yet, if it's true, what I was taught in grade school that the Native Americans, when the pilgrims were here, taught the pilgrims how to plant corn and would put fish in with the corn. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I was taught. If we can step back far enough and maybe get a big enough overview of what's happening in our lives and look down, we can maybe see that, my... The corn is much taller and greener around that pond where those Benton boys threw those rock bass. And when we can step back enough and, and, and see in, in just a little snippet of our lives with enough breadth and height, sometimes we can actually see how God takes those, those quote unquote bad things that hit us, sometimes just willful acts of throwing rotten fish our way by people who have no regard for God at all. God can take those rotten fish and he can orchestrate them and weave them in a way that he actually carries out his promises to us. And that's what we're going to see here in 1 Samuel 3. Now the chapter opens in f- with the first five verses with what I believe is just a very clear principle. And here it is. God carries out His promises to His people. Always. God always does what He says. Always. God always does it. We see in chapter 3, verse 1, a simple verse that actually goes back to chapter 2 and encompasses everything that we saw from chapter 2, verse 8 through the end of the chapter. 
the whole section here where uh, we find war breaking out and and the forces of Ishbosheth and the forces of David going at it and and having combat and everybody dies and and David's general Joab his brother Asahel goes after Saul's general and uh, pursues Abner, and Abner keeps saying, Stop! Stop chasing after me! I don't want to have to kill you! Stop! And he just kept coming and coming in. Finally, Abner tries to stop Joab's brother, and he turns his spear around to use the blunt end, maybe just to break a rib or something, and accidentally punctures him and goes through him, and he dies. We see all of that, really the whole two years of Ishbosheth's reign, capsulized in verse 1 when it says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Here's the point. God has promised to Saul, I'm taking the kingdom from you. God has promised to David, I'm giving the kingdom to you. And we are going to see God give the kingdom to David. And when we get to chapter 7, we're going to see God telling David that a descendant of his will reign on his throne forever and ever. That one that we know is Jesus. And just as we see God is always faithful to his promises in bringing the kingdom to David, we will take confidence in God's future promises that David's descendant, Jesus himself, will indeed reign forever and ever on the throne. And we find here, capsulized for us in one verse, this truth. God always does what he says. Now verses 2 through 5 we, we look at those verses and why are those there? It's basically the verses say that uh, David has six wives and six sons. By the way, if you are with child and thinking about baby names, I would discourage you from using the names in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. It's just kind of hard to get your arms around, tough on the ACT. So why is this here? It's not because God is somehow condoning David having multiple wives. And we're going to look at that in a moment. What it simply is showing, remember in this ancient Near Eastern culture, when a man has many sons, it means that he's greatly privileged. It's just accentuating verse 1, that David continues to grow stronger and stronger, and Saul's house continues to grow weaker and weaker. The point is this. God always does what he says he will do. I have a multitude of pet peeves. Some of my pet peeves you will look at and say, why is that a big deal? But I have one that just drives me crazy, and it happened again this week. I was in a meeting, and my phone rang, and it was my dentist's office saying, I just wanted to remind you, you have an appointment on Wednesday at 4 o'clock. And I feel like saying, well, why don't you just pin a note on my shirt next time I come and I'll bring it home to my mom. Yes, I know I have an appointment. You don't have to call me and tell me I have an appointment. I'm an adult. You don't have to do that. It just drives me crazy. And then my wife says, Steve, be nice. Remember that the vast majority of the population 
don't do what they say. And if they don't call, people won't come. See, the voice of reason. It's just a little quirky thing I have. You know what? God always does what he says. If he says, I'm going to be there for you, he will be there. He always does what he promises. Always. And just as he's promised to turn the kingdom over to David, and as we're going to see in chapter 7, he's going to promise David that a descendant of his will sit on that throne forever and ever. We know that he always is going to do what he's promised us in giving us a savior, a king, who will reign forever and ever. God always does what he says. Even when people start throwing fish. Turn over to verses 6 and following now. Because we're going to see in the remainder of this chapter two examples of disobedient actions. Just people just looking after their own what they want. Total disregard for the things of God. They just are maneuvering. They just want what they want. They don't care what God's word says. And yet God can take these disobedient actions of people and orchestrates them into fulfilling his purposes for his people. The first one of these instances, this is a blatant act of disregard for what is right, is found in verses 6 down through 19. And again, it's hard for us to totally grasp what's happening because this is kind of foreign to us in our culture. Remember, even in verses 2 through 5, David had six wives, most likely for political reasons. He married this girl from this region, and thus there's a tie there. Even though in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 17, verse 17, God says, when you go into the land, you're going to appoint a king. And here's something that that king needs to remember. He shall not multiply wives for himself. So David was not following God's best. This is not a model here for marriage. We know that God's model is one man, one woman, inseparably bound. Genesis 2 tells us that. Here, when we come to chapter 3, verses 6 and following, we find this whole discussion about a concubine. This is not God's best. A concubine would be a woman in Saul's harem. Very accepted within the ancient Near East. It's not God's best. And this would be a woman that Saul would have had physical relations with, but is not his wife. Well, we see in this section, Ishbosheth making an accusation against Abner. Remember, Abner is Saul's general. Last week we saw Abner was actually a very powerful man, and he's the one that put Ishbosheth into power in the first place. He made Ishbosheth king over the north. He's done everything for this guy. Now remember, Saul was a very much had paranoia in his life, fearful of everything, and here we see Ishbosheth noticing how powerful. 
powerful Abner is. And so in verse 7, Ishbosheth does this. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. We'll see her later in the book of 2 Samuel. The daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now that's a euphemistic way of of Ishbosheth saying that Abner had physical relations with Rizpah. Now the text does not tell us if this actually happened or not. My personal opinion is that it did not. Abner reacts violently to this accusation. He, in verse 8, says, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Now, that's hard for us because we love our dogs. I mean, come here, Spot. I read about Spot ever since I was in first grade. But in this time, in the ancient Near East, a dog is the lowest thing you could think of. And here, Abner is saying, Am I a dog in Judah? And look what he says. In verse 8, he says, uh, Today I show kindness. That's, again, that's that special Hebrew word we looked at last week. Chesed. That when God shows it to us, it means He's always faithful to us. He's loyal to us. Here, Abner says, I've shown chesed to your house. I've prevented David's forces from taking you captive. I've protected you. I've not delivered you. And this is how you repay me? You accuse me of having relations with your father's concubine? Now, Ishbosheth is not saying this out of some sense of morality. He is not making this accusation accusing Abner of some sort of illicit relationship or sin against God. That's not what's happening here at all. In this culture, in the ancient Near East, if Abner did indeed do this, it would be Abner saying, I have a right to the throne. It would be a political move. One of the reasons why I don't think this took place is that Abner had no reason to do it. He was already in charge. He's the one that put Ishbosheth into power in the first place. It doesn't make sense. We find Ishbosheth making a charge against a man who has been faithful to him, a damaging charge. And yet God is going to use that charge orchestrate it in actually bringing about his promises to David. When Abner hears this charge, he says in verses 9 and 10, May God do so to Abner, and more also, if the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him to transfer the kingdom from house of Saul to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba, meaning the whole territory. Abner says, because I showed you kindness and you have accused me of this, I am going to take the entire kingdom and I'm going to bring it to David. What did God promise to David? The kingdom's coming to you. Here, Ishbosheth has blatantly made a charge against Abner. 
And Abner, in response, even though he's not realizing he's doing God's will, he's angry, he's doing it out of anger, God takes those actions on the part of Ishbosheth and weaves them into his purposes. So we find down here in verses 12 and following, Abner comes to David and says, make a covenant with me. And David says, I sure will make a covenant with you, but you need to give me my wife Michael back. Saul's daughter, the one that I slew a hundred Philistines for when, when she was taken from David, when Saul turned on him. Again, not probably because David had this deep love for Michael, but because she's Saul's daughter. David is the son-in-law of Saul. What better way to unify the kingdom? And so, Michael comes back to David, and then Abner in verses 17 and following, brings the elders of Israel together and said, you guys have always wanted David as your king. Do it! So Abner is carrying out God's promises as a result of a reckless accusation on the part of one who wasn't concerned about doing the things of God. Look at verses 20 through 39. A second example of a disobedient action. Remember that, again, we have King Saul, who has a general, a guy named Abner. We have King David, who has a general, a guy named Joab. And remember, last week, Joab has a brother named Asahel, and Asahel was really fast, and he took after Saul's general Abner to kill him. And Abner kept saying, Stop! Asahel, stop following me. I don't want to have to kill you. Stop it. And he just kept coming, kept coming, coming. Finally, Abner takes his spear, turns it around to use the blunt end. I think just like a break a rib on this guy. And Asahel's coming so fast, the blunt end of the spear goes all the way through him and he dies. Well, Joab now hates Abner. Well, Joab is out fighting a fight, raiding some foreign people so he can bring the plunder back to fund the southern kingdom, to fund Judah, because they don't have taxation at this time. And while he's out warring, David hosts a supper, has a, has a dinner. And he invites Abner, and Abner comes, they have a great dinner, they come up with a plan, and it tells us in the end of verse 21 that David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Not just, hey, I feel good about my supper. No, it was like this, this sense of well-being, that everything was right between David and Abner. Joab comes back and is reported to him while you were gone, David actually hosted a dinner for Abner and sent him away in peace. And that phrase, that word shalom, repeated three or four times here. Meaning that Abner felt security with David. Well, unbeknownst to David, Joab in his seething anger, who said, David, you idiot, don't you know he was just here to spy on you? Joab sends messengers to Abner. Hey, come on back. The king wants to talk with you. And Abner comes back into Hebron. And Joab says, hey, come here, I want to talk with you. And he comes and stabs him. And Abner dies. 
Now remember, two things are going on here. David has sent Abner away in shalom, in peace, in security, in rest. There's no reason for Abner to distrust, to have distrust when David's general, Joab, calls for him. And secondly, this murder takes place in Hebron. We said last week, Hebron is one of the cities of refuge within Israel. That means that if you accidentally killed someone, you could go to a city of refuge and be safe there. The siblings of that one who died cannot come and attack you there. Here, Joab acts out of blatant disregard for the things of God and kills Abner within a city of refuge when the king has also set him off in peace. It's no mistake in verses 31 and following, as we see God's hand using all of this, that our human author of the book now starts referring to David as the king. Seven times in verses 31 through 39, all of a sudden, the king said this, the king did this. You see, God orchestrates the disobedient actions of people in fulfilling his purposes. We don't always understand why this bad stuff happens to us. Pastor Brian on our staff has the inenviable distinction of being the pastor on the staff of Faith Bible Church who's had the most attacks against his car. Within the last just short time here, he's had five occasions where people have vandalized his car. He's had a keying where somebody took a key or a screwdriver and went down the side of his car. He's been spray painted. He's had his tires slit. And on two occasions, he's had his glass blown out. Now, that's beyond frustrating. I think that very well falls into the category of rotten fish being thrown into your yard. And I'm sure right now Pastor Brian doesn't know why. But we can take solace in this. God can take disobedient acts, acts by people who have no regard for God, and he can orchestrate them in our lives to his good. And someday, when Pastor Brian can get far enough away... Maybe he will get a glimpse into why God allowed that to happen in his life. We don't know. Maybe someday this the the perpetrator of these acts will actually be face-to-face with Brian, and Brian will show him kindness, and the guy will be humbled. Maybe God is just allowing this to happen in Brian's life because God is teaching Brian to trust him. We don't know, but we can take confidence in this. Nothing touches your life or my life apart from the permissive will of God. Nothing. Remember Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He orchestrates things. To those who love God, to those who are called 
according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You see, that's what the good is. When Paul says in verse 28 that God causes all things to work together for good, the good is explained in verse 29. That's being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That means that whatever touches your life, God can use that. He can orchestrate that into a tapestry by which you, in a greater way, look like Jesus. And God is all about carrying out His promises. None of us like the stench of rotten fish. We had a fish kill in our pond last last winter, a year ago. Oh, the stench of rotten fish. We don't like it if somebody starts chucking rotten fish into our lawn, do we? People start throwing rotten fish at you. Sometimes we don't understand. How can someone be so blatant in their disregard for God and they don't care who they hurt? How do we react to that? We take confidence in this. God's a big enough God that He can orchestrate blatant acts of disregard for God and take those acts and use them in a in an orchestrated way to bring about the tapestry that He desires to bring about His promises in your life and in my life. God always does what He says. He carries out His promises even using disobedient people to accomplish his will. You may be here today and you feel like you've been the recipient of some blatant acts of disregard for God and it hurts. I'd encourage you, if you feel like praying today with someone, one of our elders will be back in the prayer room, go back and just spend a few moments in prayer. Or maybe as we've talked about the reign of Jesus Christ this morning and we've sung about what Jesus has done for us by dying for us, shedding his blood for us, You're not sure if you're in right relationship with God or not. I encourage you to go back to the prayer room, and our elder back there will have some material that he can give to you that you can look up verses in your own Bible that show how you can know for sure that you are in right relationship with God. Father, I thank you for 2 Samuel 3 and the encouragement in these verses that you always do what you say, And that you can even take the blatant acts of disregard for you and use them in bringing about your purposes, your promises in the lives of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.